Amen. Amen. Man, I come to really in, enjoy Advent. The idea that we look back in the past and we reflect upon what it was for Christ to come the first time. And then we're caught in the middle waiting anxiously with anticipation upon his second coming. And so there's this looking back and, and reflecting upon a settled event in the past and looking forward on something settled but having not yet experienced. And so we look forward to his coming again not as something possible but as something definitive. And because it is definitive, we are able to place as much hope in his second coming as we place in his initial coming, in his incarnation. I don't know about you, but I've, I've found that this time of year, uh, Advent, Christmas time, is for a lot of people contrary to expectation. And so you know the, all the songs that, that sing of Christmas cheer, that sing of you know, gladness, it's the most wonderful time of year, it's the hap happiest season of all. He couldn't even get the whole word out without breaking into tears. And so it, we, we come to this understanding that it's supposed to be this time of just kind of overflowing joy. But for a lot of us, if we've experienced significant setback, if we've experienced significant sorrow this year, we find our sorrow being compounded. We find it being magnified because on the one hand, we're told culturally, it's so incredibly amazing. You're going to get presents, you're going to give presents, you're going to attend parties, it's going to be awesome, and you're going to get time off work, and so it's going to be even better. And on the other hand, we reflect upon our present sorrow. And for some of us this year, our sorrows have been so incredibly acute. They've been so incredibly powerful. They've been so incredibly damaging. They've been so incredibly devastating. Some of us this year have experienced the loss of family members. Some of us this year have experienced the loss of, of jobs, loss of our own personal health. Some of us this year have watched feeling helpless as our family was destroyed all around us. Being abandoned by husband, being abandoned by wife, being abandoned by our children. Some of us this year, as we reflect upon the sorrows we've experienced, we are especially aggrieved because we recognize that our sorrows are, are from, they stem from our own self-infliction. We recognize the havoc that we have brought to the lives of the people around us. We are acutely aware, intimately associated with the grief that we've brought to be experienced by the people around us. And so as we come to this hap happiest season of all, we're intimately acquainted with sorrow. Now today we're going to work our way through Psalm 80. Now Psalm 80, on, on the whole, if you were to read it, you'd walk away thinking, where in the world is peace found in this? It seems to be uh, a decidedly sorrowful psalm, and you would be correct. You would be correct. Let me pray for us once again. Ask God's blessing upon this service, and then we will walk through this together. God, we recognize that you are the giver of good gifts, that you have given to this world your son, that you have taken upon yourself its sorrows. And you've caused us to rejoice at his coming and caused us to live, hopefully, wrapped in peace, even in this moment of sorrow, of difficulty, 
because he's coming again. So God, over these next moments, would you cause our hearts to glorify him? Would you cause his name to be magnified in our minds as we apply all of our will and all of our determination to focusing on King Jesus? That his name would reign in our hearts, that his life in, in the place of our own would be our place. God, would you guide us, would you direct us, would you be glorified as we give ourselves to the study of your word. We submit these things to you. Amen. Amen. As we're working our way through the Psalter, we recognize that not many of the Psalms are easily placed within the timeline of, of what's taking place. And so when we look at Psalm 80, it's, it's no different, but one of the thoughts of where Psalm 80 is likely to be situated within the timeline of Judah and Israel is subsequent to the division of the kingdom. And so you have under David and under Solomon a united kingdom, and under Solomon's son, the kingdom splits. And so you've got Judah in the south, and you've got Israel in the north, okay? And so this psalm here is likely the events recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17 when the Assyrians come and they are attacking Samaria. They're attacking uh, the capital city of the northern tribes. And they find themselves in the midst of lament, crying out to God. Now they are rightly being judged by God on the basis of their wickedness, but they're crying out to God in the midst of these things, in the midst of the difficulties that they're presently experiencing. It's instructive for us. And you'll notice that in verses 3, 7, and 19 is really the refrain, the cry out from these people, restore us, O God. And in that cry, we hear a cry out of our own lives. Look at how it begins in verses 1 and 2. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. This is so incredibly important for us and instructive that in the midst of terrific disobedience, facing the, the, the sure judgment of the Lord, in the midst of this, look at how they refer to him, the shepherd of Israel. Now the shepherd is one who knows his sheep, the shepherd is one who can be trusted, and the shepherd is one who has this intimate relationship with the one who follows him, and this is how they cry out to God. They could have cried out and said, O oh, vengeful one, O oh, one full of wrath. But in the midst of this, facing his judgment, they cry out and they say, Give ear. In essence, hear our requests, hear our hearts, hear our brokenness. Hear, O oh, shepherd of Israel. Shine forth. Come to save us. They have this idea encapsulated within this cry that they need to see God's glory filled their tribes. They need to see his glory visibly because to see his glory visibly is to receive his favor presently. They recognize the plight that they're facing and the difficulty of their circumstance and so the first of three refrains calls out, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And the psalmist here is, is recalling the ironic blessing out of Numbers chapter 6, Numbers 6, 24 through 26. 
Aaron cries before the people and says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you, everybody say, peace. See, within this, God allows sorrow to cause us to long for peace. And we recognize that peace is only ever found in his presence. God superintends to use the sorrow of our lives, the difficulties of our lives, to create in us a recognition, this this, this palpable sense that we need something more than us. We need something more than our abilities. We need something more than our ability to restore our own relationships. We need him. And when he shows up, he brings peace in his wake. And our lives are a testimony to this. How many of us, by our own will, by our own work, by our own expenditure of energy, have witnessed the relationships around us continue to deteriorate? There's no matter good things we can do, no matter pouring out our hearts and and staying up late at night and waking up early in the morning that can make some of these relationships stay together. And in the midst of those things, God desires to use that sense of sorrow, to use that sense of brokenness, to use that sense of helplessness to cause you to cry out for peace. And peace is only ever found in the person of God. Now, in the midst of this, we begin to recognize the intensity of their cry. Look at how desperate they find themselves in verses 4 through 6. Their present experience, he says, How long, O God of hosts? How long, God of heaven's armies? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. This is the picture that he observes here. We find a people giving an outward demonstration of contrition. We find a people giving an outward demonstration of being broken and wanting things to change. Right? So it's not that they've walked into the midst of the room and said, listen, I've done wrong. Let's just forget about this. You just get to doing right. I've done wrong. You just forget about this. You just, let's just push all that stuff to the side and you just fix this situation. And once you fix this situation, then we're going to talk about making things right for me. That's not how they describe themselves. But what we recognize is that that is not their outward demonstration, but this is absolutely the inward testimony of how they are. Now, in Isaiah 1, we see this spelled out in much more uh, precise and extended language. When he tells them, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want people with raised hands. So what we see in the midst of this is people on bowed knee but not bowed heart. The place they are in the experience of their sorrow is to say this actually is terrible. And all of us in the midst of some significant sorrow, we would say that this actually is terrible. Except for the most masochistic among us that say this is really wonderful. And everybody around you says, I don't want to be your friend. You seem to like bad things. But in the midst of experiencing sorrow and grief and anguish, which one of us wouldn't say this is terrible I don't want it to stop? And their past experience with God has told them, has taught them that there are certain physical things that they must do if they want things to change. So it triggers in their mind, if I pray. But their experience of prayer, 
causes them to walk away with with the recognition that God is angry with their prayers. And so he sustains them on tears. He's given them tears to drink and tears to eat. He's made all the people around them to look at them and to laugh at them and say, you cry out to this God, but he does nothing. Listen, some of us, over the course of our lives, we have been raised, unfortunately, to come into this belief that if you merely do the right things, you are observed doing and saying the right things, no matter your inward disposition, that God will be compelled to jump to attention and to act. So over the course of your lives, you find yourself chronically disappointed with the seeming inaction of God. But in the midst of these things, friend, you fail to discern the point and the purpose of sorrow. God doesn't use sorrow to prompt outward action only. God uses the tutelage of sorrow He allows us to experience profound grief. To cause to well up within us something that would not be there had we not journeyed through that sorrow. Had we not experienced that disappointment. So again they cry out, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God allows us to experience profound sorrows to create within inside of us a longing for peace. And that peace can never be separated from his presence. And that peace always accompanies him showing up. Now they describe their present situation, they, they repeat their refrain, their call for these things to happen. But now they want to go historical. They've discussed the present. Now they want to look to the past. Perhaps God will be motivated if he remembers the things that he's brought them through. So they describe it in terms of the exodus and the entering into the land in verses 8 through 13. Look at what they say. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out all the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. It says, things were great because of what you did for us. Things were amazing because of what you accomplished for us. We were in the midst of slavery. We couldn't do anything to get away from the Egyptians. And you came, and you took this vine, and you delivered And you took this vine and you carried it for the 40 years of this time and you brought it into the land. And when we entered the land, you devastated cities and you displaced peoples and you established us in the land. And when we were established in the land, you caused our notoriety to grow. You caused us to have such an outsized influence that we were recognized from the sea and to the river. So they're calling upon God to recognize the things that he has done for them. But listen to how they turn. This God who has raised them, this God who has delivered them, this God who has magnified them, this God brought sorrow. God isn't merely using the sorrow that they brought upon themselves. He is introducing sorrow into their lives. So they ask, why then? Why, because you have done all these things, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along may pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that moves in the field on it. God, you have defiled us. 
Now, historically, if this is to be found within the northern tribes, we recognize that they dwelt in constant, cyclical disobedience to the Lord. God would raise up a prophet. The prophet would go out and say, listen, this is how you're failing. This is how you're dishonoring the Lord. Turn back to him. Occasionally, they would be so moved, but, but more often than not, they would hear the scoffer and say, listen, you bring bad news. You bring a bad omen to us. We're not trying to be about that. We're happy news and rainbows over here. You take that junk to the south. So God has been spurned. God has been rejected. They want only the good from God. They're unwilling to live righteously before God. So what does he do? He brings the Assyrians to their door. Because he delights in restoring their heart to him. God will use the sorrow of your life to make you long for peace. He'll use the difficulties of your life to awaken within you a desperate need for him. But on occasion, God in his love for you will break your heart will devastate your calm, will remove all the seeming protections that you have placed in your life to bring you back to him. If you are a child of God, your father will go to great lengths to cause you incredible discomfort in the midst of your rebellion. And he does this not because he desires for you not to have joy or, 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 or peace as you're making it in the midst of these things or to enjoy these temporary highs. He does this because he recognizes that his good for you in his peace lasts evermore. In his peace can never be had outside of his presence. So they cry to God all the more. They say, turn again, O God of hosts. In essence, quit assaulting us. Quit attacking us. Turn again. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. Which vine? The vine you brought up out of Egypt. The stock that your right hand planted. The son whom you made strong for yourself. Speaking of the Assyrians, he says, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Listen, we don't merely want to be made right. We want those who are attacking us to suffer for what they're doing. But let your right hand be on the, on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And in the midst of these things, in the midst of these things, then we shall turn back. Then shall we not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. And they cry out once more, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God's relationship with his people is constantly caught up in this cycle of their waywardness and his calling them back to himself. And some of us, as we critically evaluate our own lives, we see this cycle in ourselves. Some of us as parents, we see this cycle in our children. Some of us as friends, we see this cycle in the lives of those around us. And our heart breaks for them. Our heart breaks for ourselves. 
And we find ourselves in the midst of those times and those opportunities when it's not something personal to us, when it's something being visited upon those around us, and our desire and our prayer is, God, stop what you're doing, bring them back. But what we fail to recognize in those times is that on occasion, God has introduced sorrow into their lives, and God always has purpose for his sorrow. Always has purpose for it. Listen, God's not hateful. He's not short-sighted. He's not gambling and placing bets upon your life, thinking, I wonder if I introduce this particular difficulty, if this will steer them back. I wonder if this medical malady will bring them back to me. I wonder if this departure in relationship, I wonder if this bout of this, I wonder if this struggle with that, I wonder if. Your heavenly Father knows your heart. He knows your struggles. And God purposes to use the sorrow of your life to make you long for his peace. And that you would cry out for his peace and recognize that his peace is only ever found in his person. As we think on the first advent, We recognize, as the verse was read earlier out of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, that we find peace in the person of Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of, everybody say, Peace. Of the increase of his government and of, everyone say, peace. There will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdoms to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish. We find peace in the person of Jesus. Listen, if you're here in this room and you're not a follower and a believer in Jesus, over the course of your life, you're going to be marginally successful propping up temporary peace, but that peace will always fail. It will always disappoint. You will always find yourself needing more, never able to get enough. You'll find it in women. You'll find it in in drugs. You'll find it in comfort. You'll find it in a number of different things, but the only peace that never lasts, the Bible tells us, is the peace found in Jesus. To be held by him and to know he has you. In him there is peace. In his peace and of his peace there is no end. So we reflect upon Christ. Christ who in John 10 says that he is the shepherd. Verse 1 opens up within this and it tells us that give ear, O shepherd of Israel. But in John 10 verses 14 and 15, this is what we read of Jesus. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. If you want peace, peace is never found outside the person of Jesus who longs to be your shepherd. Jesus, the true vine. It speaks of this vine that was brought out of Egypt in verse 8, but we read in John 15 and verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, and speaking of his followers, he says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do, everyone say, nothing. 
There is no peace to be had which is lasting outside peace found in Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of Man, come for the redemption of humanity. Verse 17 speaks of this Son of Man whom God has made strong for himself. Jesus claiming this title in Luke 19 and verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We recognize that peace is never had, never held, never sustained outside peace found in Jesus. Now listen, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus, if you have come to know him as Savior and Lord, this has not made you immune from strife and sorrow in this life. You will continue to experience sorrow, but God uses your sorrow to grow you in him. The time for longing for peace for us doesn't end until Christ returns. The peace that many of us want in this life is just we want the inner turmoil to go away. I don't want to feel like this internally anymore. In terms of my relationships, I don't want us to feel like this. In terms of our country, I just want everybody to get along. Like I want to be able to sit around a table and be like, pass me the cranberry sauce. It's nasty, but I'll eat it to make you happy. In the midst of this country, we want peace. In the midst of our world, we want to see men and women get along. But all quests for that peace are going to disappoint. All armistices, all ceasefires, all pledges of peace and surrender and harmony and unity in this world are going to fail. They're going to disappoint. But within the human spirit, we find that people continue to work and strive for them because they recognize they need it. There's coming a day. There's held for us a promise of this future time. And John records it in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. He said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When we recognize the difficulty of understanding and accepting what God is doing, my wife led me to a, a word this week, uh, uh, putting this in poetic form, which I think aptly summarizes this for us. This is how we'll close. He says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. It cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best 
to those who leave the choice to him. Let me pray for us. Father God, your righteous, your rule and your reign, they know no end. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would stir us, stir in us a desire for your peace so that we would seek to have more of you and more of your life in our life, more of your will present in our actions, more of your character present in our heart. God, I pray for those who are currently experiencing sorrow, seeking to relieve that sorrow with the trappings of this world. Would you break their heart and cause them to see in Jesus the only true source of peace? God, would you use your vehicle for sorrow to bring peace into their lives? Father, I pray that as we transition and and move our thoughts to the taking of the elements and remembering the sacrifice of your son, that even in these moments that your peace would rule and reign in our hearts. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.